I've seen people be able to manage their diabetes and staying the same weight. I think like those, again, like that education and those health promoting behaviors behind how to manage your blood are, is significantly more important, whether it leads to weight loss or not. Um, if it leads to better blood sugar management and that's the end all be all goal, then like that's the advice that should be being given, not like weight loss. And also weight loss is so nuanced. Like it is so new yeah. and for people just to like leave the doctor's office and be like, okay, I got to lose weight. It's like, well, how you get there too is really important. Like, are you still like living a fulfilled life? Do you still feel like you can eat the foods you enjoy in a way that works for you? Because if those answers are no, then that's not going to be sustainable anyways. And that weight fluctuation or like yo-yo dieting is only going to worsen insulin resistance. I can only imagine how many people just like with PCOS are told, okay, just lose weight and walk out of the office feeling completely lost and uh, overwhelmed by all yeah, the conflicting and info. That. You're listening to the Imperfect PCOS Podcast, where we share no BS science-backed strategies to put your PCOS into remission. I'm your host, Corey Ruth, aka The Women's Dietitian. Let's get into it. Today, we are joined by Christy. She is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator. She helps women lower their blood sugars without cutting out carbs or the foods that they love. She lives in Reno, Nevada and is a mom to two fur babies. So excited to chat with Christy today. Hello, welcome back to the Imperfect PCOS podcast. Today we are joined by Christy Messerly. She is a fellow dietitian and she works primarily around insulin resistance. And I couldn't be more excited to have her today because as y'all know, and if you don't know, then here it is. There is a huge, huge, huge connection between insulin resistance and hormonal issues like PCOS and also women with PCOS are at such a higher risk for type 2 diabetes. So it's an honor to be able to chat with you today, Christy. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about you. Tell us more. We haven't even started. Tell us about you, your journey, how you got into this field. It's kind of, I mean, it's niche, but it's not. You know, we learn so much about this in school, but I just feel like you do you do it so well. You you disseminate the information on the topic um, and you talk about blood sugar balance in a way that's just so digestible to people and so needed. Tell us how you got into this field. Yeah, thank you for that because that's how I feel about your information around PCOS. And like oh, we learned good. about PCOS in school, it's kind of, right. but it's a lot more nuanced. And the stuff we learn about diabetes in school, I feel like is just so textbook. It's not, it does, it can't be applied. Yeah one culture to the next or like one age next. And so when I became a dietitian, I started working for a tribal clinic serving like a Native American population. Very cool. Um, There for almost 10 years and just recently left that job to pursue like business. But when I started working there, I mean, I was pretty much primarily seeing people with diabetes. So, and I had to really learn tons about their culture, their Mm, food, like that tell someone who has like this culture and like this love around food that has to do with their culture, like you can't tell them to cut those things out and that's all they're told. So, and I know the same thing happened with COS. And so um, I just, I I remember doing, I was studying to be a certified diabetes educator and I did a really wonderful boot camp taught by this nurse who's also a diabetes educator. And Mm -hmm. she emphasized the whole boot camp, like put your patient first, like what does that Mm -hmm. patient need? 
what are they currently doing that's working for them? What are they doing that's not working for them? And I think like just listening to her reiterate that, I started to really apply that to like the job I was at. During COVID, I opened my own business because COVID was a nightmare for all of us. And my clinical job was completely changed during COVID. So I had a lot more time to kind of see if I wanted to be in the online space. I always looked up to other entrepreneurs in the online space that were dietitians and my business just took off. Like it was, it felt, it wasn't overnight, but it kind of felt like overnight. Like one day I was like one client and then like weeks later I had like 20. It just like was pretty wild. I really realized like the personalized support that people need and they really need like it to pertain to them versus like, oh, I just get on Google. I read this information and this is what I should be doing. Um, which serves any of us. Yes. Oh my God. So true. I remember my, uh, my clinical internship working at Kaiser Los Angeles medical center, and I had to give out handouts. So Mm -hmm. someone would get this diagnosis. I would, you know, they would usher me into the room. I would give them a printed black and white handout and go over it for five minutes. And then I felt like so defeated. Like this is not making any difference. It's so, it's so needed to, yeah. Like you said, you know, tailor an individual diet and all this nutrition advice that we get to that unique person. Yeah. So as we, as we go through this conversation, I I really want to start with, because it's such a a big, you know, it's a mouthful of a word of a term. And a lot of us don't really even understand what it truly is. What is insulin resistance? Like, how would we define that? How do we get tested for that? And what are some symptoms and, you know, long-term ramifications if this goes unchecked? That was a lot of questions. So we can back up. Yeah. (laughs) Here's 25 Um, questions to answer. Yeah. So, I mean, insulin resistance basically is just our body's way of not responding to insulin. So Mm -hmm. our blood sugars end up building up in our blood because our cells are unable to take that sugar into the cell, out of the bloodstream and into the cell. Mm -hmm. And our bodies need insulin in order to do that. So when the sugar is moving from our bloodstream into our cell, we're able to utilize that sugar as energy, you know, to sit here patient or to go out and exercise. Unfortunately, when there's a level of insulin resistance occurring, the insulin is getting built up in the blood. The sugar is getting built up in the blood because that sugar is unable to get into the cells. Mm. So our body is responding to insulin the way that we want it to. The most unfortunate part about this is that sometimes there are no signs and symptoms. There might be some but there, it might not occur to someone that they're having a symptom of insulin resistance. Um, so, yeah, it's super sneaky and it's unfortunate because it's also not something that's tested for. I mean, from what I've seen with clients, unless they, they ask for it. Um, and maybe you've seen this in your practice a little bit, but usually unless someone shows up to their doctor and says, I want these certain things tested, they're like not tested for it. So it's really unfortunate. Wow. Um, we know that insulin resistance will show like a high fasting blood sugar. And that is a really common lab that's checked is like a fasting blood sugar level. Mm-hmm. If it's above a hundred does say that there's some level of insulin resistance occurring, but the other labs that, you know, like a fasting insulin test is an amazing one that can be done. And in my history and working with clients, they have to like pull teeth trying to get that lab test value sometimes. Same, yeah. Yeah, they get like these this lab work and they're like, okay, my A1C says normal. My fasting sugar says high. What the hell does that even mean? Like right. how can high in one? Yeah. So, um, and unless someone is aware of the signs and symptoms of insulin resistance, they won't know that they have it, unfortunately. Okay. Gosh, that's so tricky. Yeah. 
Yeah. And a few, I mean, a few symptoms could be like darkness around like your neck or your mm-hmm. armpit okay. area. That's, mm-hmm. a, that is a symptom or sign of insulin resistance. Okay. I know that, and I don't know the inches off the top of my head. I think it's a, a waist circumference for Ooh. men above 40, above 35 okay. could be kind of insulin resistant. Yeah. But it's not just like, oh, I have this symptom. I must be insulin resistant. It's just so much more complex. Got it. I, you know, most people get, at least here, you know, if if you're a U.S. listener, most people get an annual physical included Mm -hmm. in their, you know, that's paid for pretty much with insurance. So that could definitely be something to absolutely advocate for, for listeners. You know, even if you, like we said, you know, there are no signs or symptoms when you go for that annual appointment, or even if you're getting blood work drawn for something else, I always try to tack on stuff. I'm like, well, can you add that in? I mean, it it doesn't hurt to ask. And at least then you know what those numbers are because, and, and answer this too, please. What happens if someone is, is developing this and it goes completely unchecked? Like what are some of the things that it can lead to? And then I want to share a little bit of a personal story um, with y'all too, because this is what made me, made me become a dietitian. Yeah. I mean, overall insulin resistance will lead to type two diabetes okay. or pre-diabetes unchecked. So okay. um, eventually your pancreas gets tired, our cells trying to take in the sugar and it's just, you have this buildup of insulin, this buildup of sugar in your blood, the cells become less and less responsive. And over time, that high level of sugar will lead to prediabetes or type two diabetes. Okay. And what does that lead? Like, what can that lead to? Um, I mean, so if left unchecked, I mean, I feel that, um, another, another like stigma I hear often is that diabetes is a death sentence. And I was just so scared. I don't, I feel like my life is over. And although insulin resistance can, and often does lead to diabetes, it doesn't always, but if it does and you catch it and you're able to manage your blood sugars and you know, and you know, kind of what to do to manage your blood sugars, then it's something you can live with for your whole life. And it can, Mm -hmm. you can live a life with pre-diabetes or diabetes, but, um, if left, I mean, it can lead to stroke, heart attack. It can lead to, um, Mm -hmm. kidneys, issues with your stomach, neuropathy in your feet and legs. Having really high blood sugars is really detrimental to our nerve, our nerves in our body. So anywhere Mm -hmm. where we have wishes everywhere can end up with issues if our blood sugars are too high for too long. And we all know somebody who has type 2 diabetes. We all do at this point. And I would also maybe argue that we all know somebody who has been seriously affected by it. I mean, there's definitely people, family, friends of mine, um, family members. Yeah. And when I was in college, my, my, I remember going to dinner with my dad and he was checking his, he was doing a little finger prick, checking his blood sugar. And I was like, what's this about? And he was like, well, I have a pre-diabetes diagnosis, Corey. And I'm like, oh man, like I, I didn't really know what that meant. So literally a week later, he went to visit his aunt who was in the hospital. She had type two diabetes and you know, it was totally out of control. She had to get her leg amputated. And he saw that within a week of getting his pre-diabetes diagnosis and that scared him so bad. He ended up, he ended up losing 60 pounds. He started cooking healthier. He cut out, he was like a big candy junk food addict, cut out all the candy. He, um, started road, he bought a road bike like us, like, and started cycling and doing these like cycle marathons and he just turned it all around and he completely reversed that pre-diabetes diagnosis. And that was such an eye opener for me because I, 
I think at that point understood that, you know, the powerful connection between diet and lifestyle and our health. So that really made me want to work in nutrition. And and then I found, you know, what a dietitian does. And so a little backstory, that was always just such a pivotal moment in my life. Yeah. And some people, I mean, just like your dad, like some people are like, nope, I'm not going to go that route. And they'll do anything to yes. try and prognosis. And I mean, they're... And, and, you know, everyone has their own like barriers. And I mean, I have people who I know really want to try and there's so many barriers that come with that. But I think like the education is so important. Like what can you start? And I always remember that uh, nurse who I did that boot camp for my diabetes educator license through, Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing now that's working for you? And what are you doing? That's not because we Mm -hmm. all have like, this is working for me and this isn't, and that's going to look from person to person and all of our barriers look but there's so much you can do to manage your blood sugars. And I think people mm-hmm. think like, oh, I just need to sit and eat salad and that's it. And like, <laughs> that's like not sustainable for one. And for two, like mm-hmm. that's not going to your blood sugars necessarily, nor like yes. a happy life. Yes. And I love a good salad, but that's also number three. Like that's pretty boring. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's no way around it. PCOS is complex and multifaceted. What we know about it, including how best to treat it, is constantly changing. That's why I've dedicated my life's work to helping women put their PCOS into remission. Inside my signature program, the PCOS Boss Academy, women lose weight permanently without restriction and master their most stubborn PCOS symptoms. If you're looking to get pregnant or want to be a mom in the future, my ultra-successful Get Pregnant with PCOS program supports moms-to-be every step of the way in conquering PCOS symptoms and bringing home the baby of their dreams. Plus, there's an additional weight loss mode to check into. These are all of the science-backed nutrition and lifestyle tweaks you need to improve your PCOS and change your life from a qualified healthcare provider and leading PCOS expert in the field. Ultimately, we are in control of our PCOS, and I would love to work with you inside one of my upcoming programs so you can step into the best version of yourself and start feeling like you again. So um, so in conjunction with PCOS, PCOS, insulin resistance can be a driving force of PCOS. And this statistic, which is absolutely crazy, is that 50% of us, 50% of women with PCOS will go on to get type 2 or prediabetes or type 2 diabetes by age 40, which is wild to me. And so, you know, this connection is so huge. What are what would you say are a few top myths? You just mentioned one um, that you have to sit, or, you sit around eat salads when you have this diagnosis. What are a couple other myths that you can think of that you often hear when it comes to insulin resistance, blood sugar, diabetes? I mean, I almost feel like we could do a whole episode on part two. <laughs> I know, right? Maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. I would say the top one is cutting out carbs or cutting out any food group in general. I know you hear that all the time too. Um, because carbohydrates do affect our blood sugars, carbohydrates do increase our blood sugars, which is a normal metabolic process. It, that mm-hmm. happens to me. I don't have diabetes or insulin resistance or PCOS or anything. And if I eat something, my sugar will go up because mm-hmm. that's our bodies respond to carbohydrates. And so yes. there's a huge fear around carbs. A hu- I mean, just general, generally speaking, but yes. in the diabetes, it's like, it's a huge fear. Um, and wow. so I would say probably the top one I hear 
Another one that I hear often is that you can reverse it and you, you won't ever need medication and, you know, it can be fully like diet and lifestyle. Well, that can happen. Absolutely. There's a time and a place for medication and the stigma around medication is very great as well. Mm. Sometimes medication is necessary once there is a diabetes diagnosis. Sometimes our pancreas is functioning at such a low capacity that we really do need the extra help of medication. Sometimes mm, diabetes is my fault. Diabetes is only lifestyle related. Um, when there's a huge genetic factor as well, mm-hmm. that people, you know, that's not talked about. It's like, I think people think like I did this to myself. I could have prevented all of this, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of like prevention that can occur, but it's not like every single person can prevent it no matter what they're doing. I mean, I've worked with people of all body sizes. I've worked mm-hmm. with like my I've worked with people who do marathon running. I've worked with people who are like nurses and doctors and pharmacists. Like none of us are, Mm. none of us just prevent something just because we have like the knowledge of doing so necessarily. Gosh. Yeah. That's so true. I, my last round of lab work, they were going to test my fasting glucose and they didn't even tell me to fast. They were like, hey, whatever. And it was like 105 or 110 or something because I had just eaten a breakfast and like was on my way there. And they were just like, oh yeah, you probably had just eaten. It was so brushed off just, I think uh, partly and because like maybe my, I mean, I'm getting close to my mid thirties, but maybe my age, you know, maybe the fact that I'm not in a larger body size, I don't know, but it was just so brushed aside when it's so not the case. I mean, I really could have, you know, you know, had something going on in the background and nobody even thought to check it. Totally. Like what if you hadn't have eaten and that 110, it's like, oh, that would be like a flag. Like we'd want to know like that number elevated. And as dietitians and people who work in the medical field, like we might be able to look at those and not, you know, like you looked at it, you're like, okay, it's because I ate, but the general Mm -hmm. person that would be really freaked out. They would have no numbers high and just be about it. And that's just like that break in care. That's Mm -hmm. really frustrating. So true. Yep. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So talk to us about what everyone's talking about right now, which are weight loss injections. You know, we have Ozempic, we have WeGovi. These are becoming more and more popular. And obviously we know they can be helpful for weight loss. Do you, um, have you seen improvements in blood sugar with these? Do we have that research out there? What is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, the only, medication that's FDA approved for weight loss is Wagovi. The rest of them are FDA approved for type two diabetes. So Mm. I like to really talk to my clients about if they're wondering about those medications, because we all are being prescribed for weight loss, but I'm like, well, let's talk about Mm. why it's prescribed for type two diabetes. Like help your blood sugars. How was the mechanism behind how it helps your blood sugar? So I, I love talking to them about that and giving a different spin on like it's just another weight loss medication. Like, no, that's actually a side effect of mm. how body, you know, work towards better diabetes management. Mm. I've seen amazing results a lot. I have a lot of clients on Ozempic. I would say that's probably a more popular one for type two diabetes, just okay. based on like my clientele, I guess. But I've seen really amazing results for with people on Ozempic with their blood sugars just being a lot more stable, a lot more well managed. Yeah. And I think, I think unfortunately. <laughs> It's like one of those things that people are mad at people for taking it, but it's like, it's being prescribed to these people who think Mm -hmm. that they be on a weight loss medication to lose weight instead of, I don't know, like understanding, like maybe why that medication works for weight loss. Mm -hmm. Why does it work? 
diabetes. I think it's just, I don't think we can blame. I know I've heard, I've heard a lot of people like, oh, people are taking that medication and it's taking away from me. And I'm like, well, it's not the this mm. patient's it's like the healthcare system and like people are just prescribing things off label for weight loss issue, not like the patient wanting it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know. I don't, we, we keep on shaming people. It's like, well, figure out what works and and do that. (laughs) Um, It's so interesting. I always think about like what, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, like the, you know, the type two diabetes management and then the weight loss, like what impacts what, like, wait, or does the weight loss then impact the sugars? I don't know. It, it's hard, so hard yeah. to say with a, with a medication like that. Exactly. And I think like, you know, one huge mechanism of the, that medication is slowing down how fast you digest food. And so if right. we think like, all of that digestion process is so much slower, it makes sense. Like from a cellular standpoint, why, our blood sugars would stabilize a lot more. Like a, a meal that might take us two hours to digest on that medication might take three or four. Right. So the digestion is so much slower. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I've had a lot of clients tell me like they're just not seeing such like spikes in their numbers and drops. Like they're more so just seeing like mm-hmm. more of like a, which feels really good. If you've ever had a blood sugar spike or a drop, it doesn't feel super great. Like you can really feel it in yes. like your energy fatigue and stuff like that. Totally, totally. I have a question about sort of the reactive hypoglycemia piece. Is that something that can be like a sign that insulin resistance is lurking or might be on the horizon if somebody's experiencing more low blood sugar? Because we see that a lot in the PCOS community. And that's something that I personally have struggled with forever and really, really struggled with when I was on birth control. It completely changed how my blood sugar was acting and it made me feel so awful. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that because I've worked with a lot of women with PCOS who end up having like pre-diabetes. I don't know like the research around it, but I would say that that I hear very often. Mm -hmm. And so there must be a correlation between reactive hypoglycemia insulin resistance and our body's like trying to maybe overcompensate for a meal and like releases too much have this blood sugar plummet. That's kind of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so interesting that every time I told a doctor that birth control made me, made me, my blood sugar drop, they looked at me like I was from outer space. And I was like, no, (laughs) there has to be a connection here. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Like literally every time I would start like a combo pill back in the day, almost exactly one week in, I would just be shaky. I would need to be eating all day long and I would gain weight every time. It was the weirdest thing. like facing this like low blood sugar kind of, yes. and you weren't free, but you were eating because you don't want to be shaky. It's just, yes. and then not the root cause, your doctor's not getting to the root cause of it is like really frustrating. I know. But, yeah. Yeah. Talk about gaslighting. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Oh my, I had one doctor tell me um, that I wasn't actually hungry, that I should have an apple and see how I feel. And I'm like, no, trust me, doc. Like I know my body better than you, sir, who doesn't even have a pair of ovaries. Yeah. (laughs) And just like that was going to solve every single problem you were experiencing at the time. Yeah. I just have an apple. Yeah. And then yeah, everything's, everything's groovy. He was, he's actually a great doctor, but just like, wow, dude. Okay. So talk to us about some of some tips that women who are struggling with blood sugar management might be able to implement. Like what are top three actionable items that you, you typically like to recommend to women that you find work really well that are doable? Yeah. I would say number one is get education around it. I have 
had people in my groups, one-to-one who have had diabetes for 10 plus years and who have never had like sit down, like learning about what your number should be, yeah. you know, look for what are signs and symptoms. Like it is kind of wild to me. I would say that number one is like get educated, especially like with a chronic illness that you're going to be managing the rest of your life. Even if your numbers are great, like mm-hmm. it's still something and okay, I need to keep an eye on my numbers and make sure they stay in target. So, and I think the best way to do that is through education and like maybe constant education every year, take a diabetes class or like learn from a dietitian. I mean, just like really put yourself out there to like understand it for like the long haul. I would say number two is- Follow Christy. I'm just going to tap that on there, by the way. (laughs) I would say number two would be get in some kind of movement that you like. It doesn't have to be- something you hate. It doesn't have to be something you dread. It can be walking your dogs. It can be playing with your kids. It can be going to the park with your kids. I mean, any kind of movement, because that's going to help pull that sugar that's sitting in our bloodstream to be utilized in our muscles. And that's exactly what we're doing. And it's something that most of us could do. Even if you, even I've had clients who are wheelchair bound and like, they'll like buy one of those, like kind of heavier ball, like one of those medicine balls and like throw them up in the air. I mean, just like get their body involved in like some type of exercise. And I would tip number three would just be like, really increase your fiber intake, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like really get in, you know, high fiber fruits and vegetables are nuts, seeds, things like that. I think that, you know, unless we have a focus on fiber, sometimes we're really not getting enough and fiber can be so awesome. I mean, for our digestive health, but also our management as well. Oh, I love those. Those are such great tips. And I think, you know, the, the education piece is key. Follow Christy. We'll go over what her handle is and where to find her in a second. And the movement thing is so, you know, I've been talking a lot about this movement. It, we are not meant to be sedentary. We are meant to be moving. And here we are. Look at us now, Christy, you and I, um, pots calling the kettle black, but, um, yeah, yeah here we are sitting in front of a computer and even just a walking for 10 minutes after a meal can significantly impact blood sugar in a positive way. So you don't have to, you know, I think a lot of us feel like we have to go and all the fitness influencers we follow, we have to go, you know, do that routine in the gym. It, it, that's just not true. It just, you know, doing something simple that we like. Yeah. So important. And then that's something that I and the fiber intake have to make a conscious effort to, to do, because if I don't think about it, days and days and days will go by and I'm like, oh my God, that's right. Like I need to move my body, like actively go do something because life just gets so busy. And I always say like, if you were to take exercise, like 30 minutes of cardio every day or or strength training, whatever you love and concentrate it down into a pill, it would be like the most powerful antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication and sleep medication out there. This is so true. For, I, I think about my toddler in this context, even my baby too. Like if there, if we have a sat a rainy Saturday and we're all just watching movies and hanging out in the house, do you know how much harder it is to get them to bed? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Like if, if, I, they're, if we're going to the park, yeah, running around, maybe we're swimming. I'm letting my toddler play in the backyard. They go down so simple. And I think a lot of us don't even think about that connect. You know, if, if we don't have any kind of movement routine, and we're having insomnia or it's taking us forever to fall asleep. Our body is just not tired. Duh. So yeah. it really makes sense to get in some movement. Like, you know, it's something, something simple. Those yeah. are really so, great tips. Like, I think, you know, I mean, I remember doing orange theory and this is no hate to anyone. I, I liked orange yeah. theory. Like I remember going to an orange theory class with my sister and we got out and she's like, I hated that. Like I hated how 
cardio we did. And I'm like, you know, I kind of did too. Like I was, I was expecting a little bit more like strength training. And I remember being on a treadmill in an orange theory class for almost like 35 or 40 minutes. Like in the, and I was rotating like yeah. between, I just remember, I don't know how people do orange theory all the time. Like that yeah. was not available for not me. For I love it. And I remember, but I, and that was when I was in college and I felt like those are the exercises I had to do. Like that's what's popular. And now that I'm out of that and I understand the research a lot more, it's like, if I get outside and like walk my dogs and I'm like out in the sun, I feel significantly better. I know my energy feels good. I sleep better that night. And when I did the orange theory, I like, I hated it. And I remember feeling like, this is what I have to do. Like, this is how you stay in shape. And that did not feel good to me at all. That's so true. That's such a good example. And then, you know, then we have clients who love it and they love to go. So it really speaks to how different we all are and just finding what works for us. I'm totally with you though. I'm not a class person. I never have been. All my friends keep trying to get me to go to this class and that class. And I'm like, I have to say, no, I just don't love them. So that's okay. That's okay. Some people, that's their jam. Absolutely. Um, So if someone is, say someone is listening to this podcast and they have recently gotten a prediabetes diagnosis and they're like, what do I do? Or maybe someone, you know, might be thinking maybe that will happen in the future. You know, maybe they have certain risk factors or they're just worried about that. And they're thinking about that. What's like a first step? Like what, if someone is diagnosed with prediabetes or not a first step, like what are some things that we can do to actually turn that ship around? Because it can be done. And that's the time to like strike when the iron's hot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's a prediabetes diagnosis, it can absolutely be turned around. And I've had clients who like, like get that education right away. And I've seen people take their A1C from like a 5.9 down to like a five because they, again, got that education. They started implementing things. Mm. They, I mean, and it's not really, according to the standards of care for diabetes, it's not really even recommended in prediabetes to be checking your blood sugar every day. But I Mm. believe that if someone has an issue with their blood sugars and they are diagnosed as pre-diabetic, that checking your sugar even once a day can kind of tell you like how well your body is doing. If you're checking at the same time every day, um, whether that's fasting or after a meal, that's just like my preference for people. I think it helps keep people on track between when they got word and when they're following up with their doctor. And again, really getting like understanding what pre-diabetes is and like what's happening at a cellular cellular level in your body. It's not just like my sugar is high and that's it. Like, no, there's so many things that are involved to get that sugar to nice. low. Understanding how to do that is really important. Yeah. Love that. Oh my gosh. Yes. And for, for like a continuous glucose monitor, can you get that typically from your doctor with a prediabetes diagnosis? Hopefully. Oh, even, even that's, that's wild. Even clients I have with a diabetes diagnosis, unless they're on insulin, they have a hard time getting it. So yeah. what do we do? What do we do? What do we, what's, if, if you could also explain to listeners, what is a CGM? Yeah. So a continuous glucose monitor is basically like a sensor that sits in your arm and you have like a reader so you can check your interstitial fluid in your arm to see what your blood sugars are doing. Mm-hmm. Your interstitial fluid is a little bit different than like your finger stick reading. So those numbers vary around like 20 point difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, a continuous glucose monitor can be really, I think it could be really useful for people with diabetes. Um, in pre-diabetes, I don't know how useful it is because our, I think people get really hyper fixated on like, oh my gosh, my number went up a little bit and I ate this. I, I almost mm. feel like stress around that is a little bit greater than the benefits of having a Got CGM. It. I think it just depends on the person again, like that okay. really 
Like, is this person really type A, really anal? Like, and they have an A1C of 5.8. Like, yeah, I know. I raise my hand to <laughs> not be a candidate that would not benefit me probably necessarily. Like, I think uh-huh. I would get super fixated that I might forget like those really good health promoting behaviors. Like I would only focus on the numbers mm, when, yes. you know, and I feel like it would cause more stress than eating something like a piece of bread or a cookie or something like, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather people learn how to include those foods than only make decisions based off of what their blood sugars are doing. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And that's definitely a very real phenomenon for a lot of us who are, even though we might be data driven, data drive ourselves crazy. Um, (laughs) So we talked a little bit about exercise I want to know, because this is a, this is a interesting topic and one that we definitely don't get education about, especially, especially if we get a diagnosis. What about diabetes and our sex life? How can that impact us potentially? And this can, you know, apply to PCOS because of that insulin resistance connection and that higher risk for type two diabetes. I did a recent post on type two diabetes and sex and the amount of like feedback I got was amazing. Like women just messaging me like, Oh my gosh, this is how I was diagnosed. Like I was having like yeast infection after yeast infection, after yeast infection. And my doctor was just giving me fix and like come to find out they had high blood sugar and a diabetes diagnosis. So a couple of things, it can affect our sex life because both men and women like our vaginas and penises can be really affected by high blood sugar levels. Mm -hmm. Um, Nerves that lead to our vaginas and penises can be really affected by having a high blood sugar, just like our nerves that lead to our wow. feet, our stomach that lead to our heart. I mean, mm-hmm. so if you think of tons of nerve endings all over our body, and the same is for like our genitals, it's the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can prevent like reaching orgasm, it can prevent men from having an erection, it can prevent women from, um, you know, being lubricated enough to have sex it can just lead to so many issues. And one thing also is that if you're having a really high blood sugar, that is like a breeding ground for a yeast infection. I mean, Mm -hmm. like is most commonly it's, it's really drawn to high sugar. And so if you have in your blood, you can have high sugar in your vaginal secretions. You can have high Mm -hmm. blood, high sugar in your urine, right? You could be peeing Mm -hmm. out which can just be a breeding ground for a yeast infection, which can obviously yeah. affect your too and lead to bladder infection. It can just really like pile on top of each other. And oh um, sex is so stigmatized and women enjoying sex is so stigmatized that if a woman goes to their doctor and says, you know, my sex life is really depleted. I'm really struggling. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm str- it's painful during sex because they're not lubricated enough. A doctor, I've had a lot of women tell me that their doctors really blow them off because they are a Have woman. a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, like make it worse. Great. Yeah, there you go. Addressing like the issue because women enjoying sex is so stigmatized as well. So women like okay. I've had women, like I kind of just shut up after my doctor said that and lived with this like poor sex life for a while because they their underlying issue was not being addressed, which was high oh. blood. That like grinds my gears like no other. I but just just hearing inability to orgasm, <laughs> lack of lubrication, and erectile dysfunction like that's enough for me to be like, all right, where's my fiber? Like let me get let me get it in. Um, yeah, I remember in also in college, I was I started on because none of the birth control was working for me. I hated it all. So they put me on um, the Nuva ring, which is like a vaginal ring that you insert. And it was fine. But after like two months, 
my libido completely ghosted me, like completely. And I noticed, and I had a boyfriend, the same boyfriend all throughout college. And I noticed, and I was like, oh, this sucks. So I went to the doctor and I remember bringing it up. And that was kind of my reason for wanting to try something different. And I just remember that doctor almost laughing at me as if that was the most crazy thing that I could ever say that, you know, for a reason to come off of birth control was because I had absolutely zero sex drive as if that was like so unnecessary. Like, why do I need that? It was just so crazy. I'll never forget that moment. And just, yeah, feeling like leaving the office feeling like, well, I guess now I feel like this crazed like sex fiend when I, I'm actually just a normal person, just your average woman who wants to enjoy that still. Sorry. Um, it's just so nice. And when I, yeah. I, I forget, like I wanted to post about it on Instagram for a while, but I was uh-huh. like, no, it's like, sometimes you don't know how to post about that stuff, but I'm like, I no, like, I, I have the education. I'm going to do it. And yeah. the amount of like great conversations I had in my DMS about yes. women gaslighted for enjoying sex and then going to their doctor being like, I can't orgasm. I can't do this. I can't do that. And it just like it being this like issue with their blood sugar and honestly kind of an easy fix, right? Like, I mean, and I'll be all, if it had to do with their blood sugars, that is an easy fix. And here they are not enjoying sex and they're, or, or even men. I mean, like I've, I've worked with men who are like, I was in this embarrassing situation where like, I literally could not have an erection and my sugars were so high. And it's like, I always tell people when the conversations I was having in my DMs, like it's not up to your doctor to decide if you should or shouldn't enjoy sex or should or shouldn't have a libido. Like right. that's an important part of your life. Like you yes. deserve that and advocate for yourself. But so I, the, I had my DMs when I had posted about sex and diabetes management. Hmm, I bet. Yeah, definitely something we don't hear enough about. No. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And yeah, yeast infections, that is so common. I've had one in my life and I, freaking never want one again. So I can only imagine the frustration with repeat ones. They, no one wants that. No one wants to do that. So another reason to really get that checked out, if that's something that you might struggle with, give us one piece of outdated diabetes advice that you hear and how to actually go about it the right way, how to clear it up. Cause I I know they're, I know they're out there. Oh my gosh. They're so, I've done post. Like we could make like a part one, a part two, and a part three. <laughs> um, say that weight loss will cure diabetes is one out, mm-hmm. outdated advice, or that weight loss is the main treatment for type two diabetes. Um, I mean, can weight loss help with diabetes? Yeah. Does it always? No. And I've seen people be able to manage their diabetes and staying the same weight. I think like those, again, like that education and those health promoting behaviors behind how to manage your blood are, is significantly more important, whether it leads to weight loss or not. Um, if it leads to better blood sugar management and that's the end all be all goal, then like, that's the advice that should be being given, not like weight loss. And also weight loss is so nuanced. Like it is so new and for people just to like leave the doctor's office and be like, okay, I got to lose weight. It's like, well, how you get there too is really important. Like, are you still like living a fulfilled life? Do you still feel like you can eat the foods you enjoy in a way that works for you? Because if those answers are no, then that's not going to be sustainable anyways. And that weight fluctuation or like yo-yo dieting is only going to worsen insulin resistance and make Mm, blood harder. That's good to know also. So pick, pick something that works well and stick with it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine how many people just like with PCOS are told, okay, just lose weight and walk out of the office feeling completely lost and uh, overwhelmed by all yeah, the conflicting info. That, 
most people I've worked with, they're like, you know, they've been being told to lose weight their entire life. So they go in and get mm. this really diagnosis and they're like, and I'm still being told to lose weight. And obviously yeah. they, they're not understanding how to manage their blood sugars or quote unquote, lose weight. If that's what the doctor wants them to do, like, obviously they're still really struggling. So like, that's not really a solution for most people. Right. Yeah. They've already been dealing with that for long enough. That makes right. perfect sense. Oh my gosh. Right. Yep. Have, uh, when you have insulin resistance and issues with your blood sugars, weight loss is really challenging. Like you have yes, to address it is have to address like the blood sugar mismanagement first. And I think like people are like, oh, just lose weight. And so people do all these drastic things to lose weight. And the insulin resistance really isn't getting better technically. Mm -hmm. Um, happening. It doesn't, those two things are not, don't have a causal relationship. It's not like, oh, you lose weight, your insulin resistance is better. Oh, you lose weight, your blood sugars are great. Like Mm. if you're if you're not tackling those things with health those healthy promoting behaviors, you're likely not going to be able to sustain it for long term. Right. Yeah. If you're just going into starvation mode, then yeah, you might lose weight, but how's your blood sugar looking? And you know, yeah. Oh yeah. So true. Mm -hmm. There's such a, such a big topic. There's so much to know. And I'm so glad that we have you in this space to be able to kind of clear up a lot of the myths and tell us how listeners can find you and, and how you work with clients and work with, uh, you know, with folks who have diabetes and insulin resistance. Yeah. So, um, I, my Instagram handle is type two diabetes dot nutritionist. And I mean, I work with clients at all. I feel like I do similar. I have like tons of different things. I try and make things as accessible as possible for people. I mean, I know that like one-to-one coaching isn't always super accessible, but I do that. I do a group coaching program and recently a new website. That's like a recipe database of blood sugar friendly recipes and teach people how to like meal plan. And it spits out a grocery list based on like created. And so that's like a really like accessible way to work with me right now. And that is brand new. It's called the balanced blood sugar society.com. And you can pay monthly, you can pay for a whole year and you'll get monthly support from myself and a recipe developer as well to kind of help troubleshoot like how hard it can be to meal plan, meal prep, grocery shop. I mean, it's a whole job in and of itself for most people, especially people who have kids and full-time jobs. So we're just trying to take that burden um, away from people. That is so amazing. And as you might know, I love to cook. So I will be all up in there looking at all those recipes. (laughs) I love that. Yay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I will absolutely link to everything that you just mentioned in the show notes. Um, so everybody look out for that. And it's just been a pleasure to have you, Chrissy. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Corey. If you like this episode, don't forget to review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. It's what keeps me running. Thanks for listening to the Imperfect PCOS Podcast.